Well, so I th- I feel like we could fill a podcast with soccer, but yeah. we, pro- we probably should start. Nada, we we good to go. All right, so I'm here with Matthew or Matt Weaver, uh, director of sales for Gradient. It is a Gradient AI or Gradient. It's Gradient AI. Okay, so yep. a Gradient AI. Today, Matt, well, I appreciate you coming in from KC. Yeah, we were just talking me. about KC soccer. Absolutely. Uh, the hotbed or one of the hotbeds of, uh, of the U.S. in youth soccer especially. Uh, but the reason we have you down here ultimately is to talk about artificial intelligence in underwriting tools and specifically for self-funding and stop loss. So I appreciate you coming down, uh, man. This, yeah, this is absolutely. Gonna be fun. My pleasure. Looking forward to the conversation. This can be a pleasure for me because, you know, I'm, I was telling you, I'm a stop loss guy. And this is something I wanted to cover for a while. But before we go in there, Matt, I do want to get to know you. Um, obviously, knowing that you live in Kansas City now, but a little bit about your backstory personally and professionally so the audience gets to know you as well. Sure. Um, just where do you want me to start? Well, let's start with the fact that you were a lawyer. Uh, yes. I definitely want to understand what happened, what happened there. Yeah. So when I graduated from college, um, just frankly, I, I, I didn't exactly know what I wanted to do. <laughs> I was fortunate enough that I had a, a family that uh, was encouraging me to continue my education. Um, and so I did that. I went to, uh, I was, I went to the university of Missouri, uh, in Columbia for college. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went to the university of Missouri, Kansas city for law school. That's what got me into Kansas city. Um, had a great experience in law school, loved it, loved learning. Um, uh, just, just everything about law school was fascinating to me. Um, uh, like I said, really enjoyed that. Did you think you would have a specialty or did you know there was a type of practice that you want to go into? You know, I had some dream, I think that like, like a John Grisham novel, like <laughs> I was going to be, you know, litigating these really important cases and, and, you know, pounding the table and you know this you is, can't handle the truth right exactly yeah, yeah. exactly and um so uh obviously you learn very quickly in in law school that it that it isn't that way mm-hmm. um but i you know i had originally thought honestly that i was going to be um more as i went to law school more on, on like the agent route like a sports agent ah, i always okay. been fascinated by sports um was in communications and journalism in college and and uh thought that you know my my ultimately i i always dreamed that i'd be the play-by-play voice for the st louis cardinals Turns out that's a hard job to get. That's uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, Joel uh, Goldberg. Right? Yes. Yeah yeah yeah, yeah. 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 Well, that's in Kansas City. Kansas City but, yeah, but he didn't yeah, yeah. used to do the St. Louis. He did do. I think point? he did more of the like uh, like the guy in the stands. Yeah. Okay. The, the on yeah, on field yeah, reporter yeah, exactly. guy. Yeah. 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 Exactly. But um, so uh, yeah, went to law school. Um, was fortunate enough to do very well in law school. Very well might be a slight exaggeration, but it did. <laughs> you made it through. Yes, That's I made well. it through. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then uh, you know took a job um, at a at a large um, insurance defense firm, um, and you know kind of that path that you go down of law school, you go through it, and and you get these jobs after the first year, and and uh, you know you're, they're offering you sort of salary that you, you know you, at that time you think this is crazy that I could yeah. be making this so amount of money. Yeah, you're gonna pay me this yeah, amount of money. Pay yeah, me yeah, this amount yeah. of money. Exactly. Well, so insurance defense firm, like expound on that for me. What is, so what that it mean? was mainly like I did a lot. I did I did a lot of um, uh, well, I did a, several different things. I did some medical malpractice stuff. I did uh, it was kind of a hodgepodge. When it's I, I always think of it akin to like pledge ship. It's like you, you get in there and they just they throw everything at you right to yeah. see what you, what you what you can handle and 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 where it shakes out so i did some some workers comp stuff some insurance defense stuff some mm-hmm. subrogation issues mm-hmm. um you know car accidents that type of thing and then i did some medical malpractice cases where you know you're 
you're uh, you're ultimately defending the insurance company and that's in that situation so it was it was a hodgepodge of different things and and I did it for about two years and um, you know there were some aspects of it that I loved yeah. but there was a lot of it that I that I didn't love well so I started my career not in on the legal side but in uh, Liberty Mutual as a case manager for auto like national right. market auto trucking yeah. claims so i was talking to guys like you yeah, often exactly right? right and then um i i discovered pretty quickly hey this is a good job but it's not necessarily the path that i want to go down for the rest of my career yeah. but it was my accidental entrance into the insurance industry so it sounds like you had a pretty similar Same, very accidental similar, step yeah. so what was your impression of insurance at that time you know coming cold out of college and coming from law school um you know it wasn't necessarily flattering i don't think uh, it was it, it it just seemed like it was this sort of just this huge maze right and it was it was really difficult to and 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 obviously you know as i've gotten into it more and more i see that that is in fact you know very true, that's true right? yeah yeah for sure um so it was it was a lot of i mean ultimately you know we were obviously trying to do the right thing by our clients mm -hmm. and um but you you just see you know you really start to learn the the in, the inner workings of how the games are played and how things are delayed yeah. and stall tactics and things along those lines and and how um you know somebody ultimately that 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 simply was injured how long it can take them to get you know proper you know recovery for for what well, that, we that was the wildest thing well two things that were eye-opening for me one is exactly what you're talking about the length of time it would take for a serious injury to ultimately get resolved and then the future projections of what that impact would look like on the person the other thing is going into it going wow insurance big bad insurance company and then you work inside of an insurance company and actually see the other side of that they're defending against frivolous yeah, claims and yeah. slip and falls for people that you you know have done this before and, and are doing it just because they know you'll give them 500 bucks to go away. There's all sorts of other perspectives that you get inside the machine that you realize, hey, it's a little bit more of a gray who's right and who's That's wrong. Right. In yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. We would do we would have certain cases like it, maybe it was a work comp place where somebody uh, somebody was claiming like total disability and then. And then you'd find out like two days earlier uh, from the two days prior to the court case, they were in a rodeo, like actually riding a bull. And you're like, uh, this guy can't possibly be, yeah. you know, permanently disabled. So, yeah, there is definitely a, a gray area there. It, it cuts both. So ways what was sure. the so you said about two years? What was the post litigation defending insurance companies? What was next for you in your career? So it it ultimately was for me, I was I, I was in, in this you know, it, it felt like this is weird to say, but I, this is the only way I can probably articulate it is that it felt like I constantly had like a homework assignment. It felt like I wasn't out of law school and I was would constantly be having more mm -hmm. stuff dumped on my desk and, uh, you know, working these these crazy hours. Not that I'm opposed to working hard hours, but it was just the like, you know, you did a really good job on a deposition or writing a memo or, mm -hmm. you know, something along those lines. And it was a pat on the back and like, hey, you're on the right track. But it wasn't. I kind of like that instant gratification that you get in the sales environment sure, where it's sure. more money in your pocket. And so, and I grew up in a family of, 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 uh, sales person, sales people. My dad owned his own, um, company and was, was for all intents and purposes, a traveling salesman and, and had, and created a great business for himself. And so I came by that sort of naturally. And, and, um, I just thought I was trying a case one time, or I say trying a case, I was part of the team that was trying the case. And I, 
um, the guy on the other side of the the, um, the plaintiff's attorney was um, said, "Hey, you know, you're you're pretty good at this, but I can tell that you don't really love it. Like, have you ever thought about getting into something else?" And I said, "You know, it just caught me at the right time. Yeah, right time. Sometimes is timing everything. is yeah, for sure." And so he said, "My father owns a um, uh, a employee benefits um, uh, consulting firm, mm-hmm. and um, and." He's it's a, it's a very small shop, but but like five of the six or you know three of the six guys that they have at the that are sales guys that there that are consultants producers at the shop are former attorneys and they do a lot of um, compliance work for their clients and stuff like that. And there's this you know he kind of was selling me on at this untapped potential in the employee benefits arena. And did you, you have know, to have him define what employee benefits? Yeah, were? I mean, yeah. I, I kind of knew it. I thought <laughs> of it as like the guy that comes in and tells us a renewal that our rates are going yeah. up, yeah. right? And walks us through a summary of benefits. That's an easy know. job, right? Hey, right. here's yeah, your I increase. See you next year. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so when I, when, you know, you learn the residual nature of it mm-hmm. and of the income. And, and so I literally went and met with them like two days later, and um, uh, the guy that owned the agency was a uh, was just an incredible salesman and just <laughs> this kind of larger than life personality. This guy named Paul Power, and he was kind of a mentor to me eventually, and is just this great guy. And he he just made it seem like you know basically like you're a moron if you don't do this, <laughs> and. Um, he was such a consummate salesman. Like at the at the lunch, he sat there and was like, "So, what's your decision? Like, are you doing this or not?" He's like forcing you into close right now. And I'm right like, lunch. you know, I'm making this salary now. You're asking me to, you know, I, I remember I negotiated thirty six thousand dollars as my starting um, base salary. I remember going to my wife at the time and, and saying. You know, hey, number one, I'm not gonna. You know, you thought you married a guy that was gonna be a lawyer. I'm not. I'm not doing that anymore. Wow. I'm, and not to mention, I'm gonna take this huge decrease in salary. And she's like, well, "What is it gonna be?" And I'm like, "Well, it's thirty six thousand, but I negotiated him up from twenty eight. Ah. Um, she's like, "You know, it's just mind blowing that you're even because obviously law school is such sure. commitment, and you go. Well, this was your first years. big sale of your career, selling the yes. misses on on yes, this career change. Exactly. So after the probably the initial shock wore off, and on her, and even. You you like what was the early life on the were you a producer this podcast is brought to you by true captive insurance a premier medical stop-loss captive for employer groups ranging from 25 to a thousand employees true captive believes in healthcare that is personal and insurance that isn't complicated that's why they take a white glove approach making it easy for employer groups to transition into a program built specifically for them check them out at truecaptive.com I was. I mean, I immediately day one started as a producer, didn't know anything about benefits other than, you know, this. I mean, I didn't even know the terminology, you know, the the deductibles and out-of-pocket maximums and coinsurance, all those things, not to mention where, you know, but those were the days of, you know, it was all about sort of. Um, gosh, I'm dating myself. Here. I sound like an old man. Like those were the days, <laughs> but it was days. literally like, you know, you're getting your RFP, right. And it, all the things that we talk about now that are, that are terrible that producers do, but it, it was, it, that, that's what the way it was. Then it was, you know, you, you know, you're establishing the relationships and then with, with the, the people that own the businesses. And then you're literally, you know, it was almost like stock car racing in the sense that everybody's getting the same product. It's it's a matter of, you know, can you articulate it differently? Can you create a deeper relationship? There was none of the real, you know, alternate funding tools and things like that. It was, you know, fully insured with Blue Cross or fully insured with UHC. Mm-hmm. Give me your senses. I'll go market it. We'll app you and we'll, we'll go out, right? And that's when I first started off and doing more of the, and I remember the first 
day at my job, they handed me the yellow pages, and this sounds like an old, you know, something well, that, boiler. So my, one of my old, uh, or not old, but one of my earlier mentors in, in the stop-loss world, Mike Heffler of at Sun Life, sure. told me a similar story. Mike's a, been a sales guy his whole career. He's been at Sun for, gosh, 25 years. He literally told me that was his territory. It was like, well, see that yellow pages right there? Go call on whoever you think you should call on, right? Yeah. And that, that was his that was his lead generation mechanism was a, a yellow page. And so I get it. I mean, yeah. it's, the information's there. It's just a lot more literally pounding the pavement in order to get business. It seems insane to think that 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 is yeah. how I started. And 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 you know, and like the first day, they're like, I mean, we could train you on this, but you just got to you got to get out and start doing it. Yeah. And so you're just picking up the call and or picking up the phone and learning. Well, how long fly. did it take you to really feel like you got your feet under you? It took, you know, I had some just some dumb luck sales, some some friends, mm-hmm. some some, uh, you know, I, I always say to people, it's like that that feeling you get when you realize that they aren't doing you a favor by by bringing you in, but you're doing them a favor because you're you're so good at your job, right? Mm-hmm. That you're going to be a great steward of their risk. You're going to take care of them. You're going to give them bring them that. So it, it took me a good year to a year and a half to really feel like I was good at that, where I was, I could, you know, I could differentiate myself from, from, you know, the, the, the other brokers in town, the other yeah. producers in town by the value that I was bringing, the, the, the different plan designs I could bring to the table, the different funding mechanisms, things along those lines. Um, so it took me, you know, it took me a good year. Like I said, did you, a good did you year. find yourself gravitating towards the alternative funding once you learned about it? I mean, that's, that was my experience is once it was finally introduced to me years into my career, i never looked back, right? It was the only thing that I actually found really intriguing or interesting about the healthcare space was self-funding and all the financial mechanisms you could uh, pull. So was that a similar experience yeah, to you or it, were you just, it really was, okay. I mean, it was, it was, it, it was, it was, it, it started off to, for me, a, a not a lot just about the insurance itself, but a lot of the other value adds that we could mm-hmm. bring to the table from a compliance standpoint, from um, just, the, you know, we would get, we would do, you know, I would use my legal background to come in and do like reviewing handbooks and things like that. You're really trying to differentiate yourself from, you know, all the other guys that are out there just quoting your business, yep. right? And saying, yep. hey, I can get you 5% savings on this or whatever, or we're the largest shop in town because of our block of business. We can, you know, we get preferred rating and whatever and it's like okay whatever um but yeah ultimately you know i started off in some of my and some of the sales i had like in someone's living room you know to their their little concrete construction company and and selling to a husband and wife and and what i really started to gravitate to was the larger the larger groups uh, where you could do more where you could really do more consulting work where you could bring alternate funding, where you could bring cost containment solutions, where you could where you could really, um, you know, differentiate yourself as a broker and not just, hey, here's you know here's the you know the the buka quotes that, yeah. that everybody gets and I and I delivered to the, them to you a little faster than somebody else, so I should get your business. Yeah, right? exactly. So, yeah, and it feels like the way you win business is the way you lose business in that situation, absolutely. right? And then somebody should come in a little faster than you and a one percent lower rate. And next thing you know, if that's all you were able to offer them, you know, in in competition, then well, you're going to lose the business in a similar fashion. So how long were you uh, kind of in that consulting role or in that world? So I was in that world for gosh probably 15 years okay so i it's at, at a couple different shops um through you know just 
through, all in, in Kansas City, but ultimately I started, you know, moving from a, a, a practice in, in Kansas City to a regional practice and mm -hmm. then ultimately wanted to move to a national practice. Mm -hmm. And so um, that was sort of the evolution of my, my career and getting more into specific niches, um, you know, or specific industry verticals where, you know, you, you become a, kind of an expert and go to the the conferences and and really drill down on on that particular industry know all the players and, and yeah. you know in that industry and you know you you could really you could build a nice block of business for oh, yourself. Oh yeah, you build a nice career. Like I mean, uh, there's a especially in that world once you got pretty good at what you're doing in consulting. I mean, there's a lot of people that that's their career for 30, 40 years and because of the residual income and be, you know the kind of snowball effect of your your block of business, it's a great quality of life. But obviously it sounds like you've exited that that world. So how, why did it sunset? How did you end up getting over to Gradient? And then that'll give us a transition into kind of phase two of this. this yeah, episode. sure. Yeah. Um, ultimately, I got into this this crazy niche of of PEOs, right? Professional employment really? organizations. Okay. So we would, I would, I had a at a practice group at one of my brokerage houses that I worked at where we would. We would build master health plans for PEOs, so not the like the the master health plan that the PEO would sell mm -hmm. to all the 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 worksite uh, or the client based companies and the worksite employees. Um, and so, you know, then then we would help make that plan sustainable, right? And make sure that the underwriting was done properly and the groups were bucketed where they needed to be. And and really, I you know, you get into the PEO world, and I became sort of infatuated with, you know, the value prop of PEO and, and what they brought to the table. I, I, from being from the broker side, right, you'd always been like, you know, PEOs are terrible and they're competition. And, and it took me a while to realize like this, this is such a great thing that the service that they're doing for small employers. And then, but being able to work with a large PEO, right, you'd, you'd get a piece of that business and it might be, you know, a five, six, 8,000 um, life company that you've, that you've now written. And so um, I went to work for a, a company that was a, um, called Compass Consulting Group as a division of One Digital. And um, we did the consulting work and the entry-level underwriting. So, okay. um, you know, we, we would, you know, we would have, we had underwriters that when the, when the, you know, when a, a paychecks or a you know, ADP or uh, not that those were all of the clients, but just giving examples of, uh, of those type of clients, very large PEOs, when they would have a new piece of business, we would be in charge of the, the underwriting for that. Okay. So where, where did, is that a piece of business you want um, it, or, or you don't want, and if you do want it, where do you want to slot it at? And so, um, uh, you know, it was during that. So I would sell that. I would sell the system to PEOs. And then I, I wasn't the underwriter, of course. I, <laughs> I didn't, don't have that brain power or the actuary or anything along those lines. But I would sell our systems and then bring PEOs in. So at that time, it was the largest PEO consulting practice in the country. We had, you know, something like 40 or 50 PEOs that we worked with, which equated to a significant volume of, of, of lives. And, um, Ultimately, I had met the guys from Gradient AI years before when they were at a different spot, and and specifically the founder of Gradient AI, a guy named Stan Smith, our CEO and founder. Um, I had met him through this PEO world, and this other gentleman that that brought me on, a guy named Chase Pettis, um, who is who leads our sales. Um, overall, our sales practice on the A&H side, and um, I had met them years before, and we, we just had a great relationship and stayed in touch, and we're in the PEO space, and so as Gradient 
you know, kept moving from just this little engine that could, this startup, right, that was really focused on property and casualty and doing predictive predictive analytics and claims work on, on that side. Interesting. But okay. it was always, hey, we're going to get into the A&H side. But, you know, you know, obviously with startups, it's it's about funding. It's about, mm-hmm. you know, are they bringing in clients? And, and um, you know, Chase and I had, were personal friends, and, and he always said, you know, when when we get, you know, the level of funding that we need to get in, would you be interested? And I really liked where I was at prior, but unfortunately, there's only so many PEOs in the country, and there's only so many PEOs in the country that have master health plans. And I was out, you know, we had... I, you hit a saturation for, point? Yeah, well, I, I mean, the good thing was I had I'd sold a lot of it. The bad thing was there just wasn't that much many more opportunities. And within this particular company, there just wasn't an ability to sort of pivot, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe into association hand plans or MIWAs or VIBAs or other pooled risk programs, things like that. It was really just this focus on PEO. So I kind of a little bit saw the writing on the wall and they're still in business and doing a great job today. But from a sales standpoint, they just, you know, there just wasn't that much opportunity. And that was when Gradient finally came to me and said, hey, are you, are you ready to make this jump? And, you know, coincidentally, I had been sort of selling gradients product to my PEO clients. So I, I had the kind of the, I, the expertise of, you already knew how to sell it. I already knew how to sell it. Right. And I knew the value prop that it brought to that particular industry, but at this, so, so it was in, in May of, of 2020, I guess. Um, is that right? 2021, um, that I, that I made the move, uh, to gradient AI. And that was really in its, in its infancy of, of um, you know what we were doing on the accidental a- accident and health side, it had been well established on the on the property and casualty side, but we had very just a small handful of clients okay. at that point. Um, we had uh, just a, a, a really skeleton crew of of, uh, of workers. We had a, a one other sales guy beside myself and. So it's pretty crazy to think in that time and just about- well, I've heard a lot of buzz about grading and that's you know and even this space right and I want to maybe take a second for us to define yep. what it is and what it does here in just a moment but I've I've been hearing a lot of buzz and granted I have a biased you know look at this industry because most of my network is in the self-funded space so that right. makes sense for me to hear but with gradient the proliferation proliferation of, of obviously Verikai and some other tools I think Milliman has one I want to know about artificial intelligence and underwriting. So could you define what gradient is? Let's start there with this definition of what this tool does, and then let's let that sort of pepper the conversation sure. from here. So ultimately what, what gradient AI is, is really about autom- automation, right? And it's about using artificial intelligence and machine learning to more accurately and efficiently predict risk. Okay. Specifically in areas where there may be holes in the information that you're given about a particular entity and the risk that you might be taking on. Mm-hmm. And we can get into what that means in a little more detail, but in every situation that I'm in when I'm talking to, whether it's, and, and I run our stop loss vertical from a sales standpoint, so I'm very mm-hmm. intimately involved in the, in, the, in the stop loss world as well. And um, every stop loss, whether it's a carrier, whether it's an MGU, whether it's a reinsurance carrier working on a quota share basis, Anybody that's that that's that's in and around the stop loss space is trying to more accurately predict risk, mm-hmm. right? And obviously, we're in this world now where there is a tremendous amount of proliferation from self-funded to or from fully insured into self-funding, right? And that's that's 
Um, I don't need to tell you that's a, that's just a huge, huge move and a huge sort of revolution in, in, Mm -hmm. in insurance today, Mm -hmm. right. And to health insurance today. And so when that happens, there is a, there is a lack of data, a lack of a, a, a clear picture and there's never a perfect picture, right? And we always say that mm-hmm. at Grady and AI. Um, we are not a crystal ball. We are not a, a full replacement for underwriters. We're not supposed to, you know, it, it's it's not our, we're not the single source of truth as mm-hmm. it comes to You don't have this risk. little black box that sees the future, right? right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Close, Close but, 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 yeah. Not, uh, yeah. but not not all the way there yet. And so it, it really is the idea of advanced decision support. Um, along with the expertise of the people that are, that already have their their butts in the seats um, at these particular entities, and so um, so take that example of you know a fully insured group that's moving to self funded. Maybe it's a you know it's a 125 life group, and, and they've got very limited claims data, and they fill out a GHQ writer or a, or a or a disclosure, like a gatekeeper form, a disclosure form, and they check no on every, you know, every box and, and, um, you know, they hand their renewal over and there's just, just maybe just this very limited claims data, right? And the stop loss carrier um, or the MGU gets this dropped in their lap and, and they really, you know, they're, they're trying, is they're, they're, they're spending a tremendous amount of man hours. Um, I, I guess I shouldn't say man hours, just man, woman hours, yeah. team power, person on, hours, person, yeah. person hours on, on this, this group, right, to say, you know, first of all, is this just a red light? Like, should we should we just stop, move, yeah. stop and move on? It's not a fit. Stay fully insured. Stay with, you know, your your Buka carrier. And, um, you know, and, and you're in a good spot there, right? Or is it, you know, yellow? There's some, some risk there, but we could. Uh, we've got, you know, uh, an idea of what we can do from a cost containment mm-hmm. standpoint from this. Or maybe there's a particular, maybe it's a candidate for RBP or maybe it's a candidate for a captive or whatever the, you know, the continuum of risk might be. There's there's your flavor, you know, what it mm-hmm. might be for that. Maybe it's a level funded case, right? Um, or maybe it's a, just a tr- true speck and egg and it's a green light. And this is a case that, you know, a stop loss carrier may not know they they want to to write but when they run it through our artificial intelligence predictive analytics and when they run it through our data aggregator ecosystem um we are in a matter of minutes providing them with this color right this 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 these missing puzzle pieces of what's going on and they can take that data along with the data that they have and say okay yes this is a piece of business that we do in fact want to go after because gradient um, using their 300 and uh, about 310, 320 million be- U.S. belly buttons that we use. Um, we don't profile our data. We're actually using real U.S. belly buttons when we when we run a census through. And I'll we'll go back and talk yeah, about that. Yeah. I'm getting ahead of myself here, but that it is providing them with that comfort level of, you know, can we adjust our manual? Um, you know, do we know what the high cost claims are going to be for this particular group? Are there shock claims that are coming mm-hmm. along in the next 12 months? And they can then decide this is a piece of business that we do, in fact, want to write or or yes, we do want to write it, but we want to write it at, at this price. point. Well, that was always a challenge because I, I was at Sun Life, let's see, 2014 to 17 or something like that. And before these were commonplace. Um, and we had a floor, I think at that time, it was 200 lives or above. If it was a fully insured takeover, we would look at it. But anything below that 200 life threshold, hey, we don't want to touch it unless there's a really strong argument and you can state the case for the case for us to look at it. And so you miss out, you know, they're a big direct writer, but you miss out on a lot of opportunities when there's like, oh, 
you can't even look at that size segment, yep. unfortunately. And and the reason being is obviously the close ratios are even lower. There is that absence of data. It's a lot of work spinning your wheels as an underwriter and a very low likelihood that even if you did get good pricing, it wasn't even going to convert to self-funding. And so exactly you just right. wasted your time. But that is also because you just couldn't get an accurate picture of the risk profile from a broker's perspective as a consultant to steer them that direction and the stop loss carriers to, to assume that risk. So looking at something like this is really intriguing because it solves for that size segment that there's so much opportunity that if you could just get them converted to self-funded, then you can obviously see fully what that risk profile looks like, but they get to enjoy the same controls and stop gaps and things like that that these large uh, employers are, are, are realizing. So it was frustrating as yeah, a salesperson. I absolutely. knew there was so much opportunity sure, on the I was table. In the same boat as and I couldn't I couldn't do anything about it. And so yeah. it, it's clear that you guys are obviously laser focused on solving that. So we've kind of got the what, right? Um, but like explain to me a little bit more of the how now. So like if I were to partner with um, whether I'm a broker or I'm a stop loss carrier, you could talk to me a little bit about your your customer profile. How are they using this tool? What do you need in order to give them that green or yellow or red light? Sure. Tell me some of the sausage making uh, processes. So, yeah. This podcast is sponsored by PlanSight. PlanSight is a technology for employee benefits brokers to more efficiently manage their RFP process for any group size, all funding types, and over 20 benefit lines and point solutions. PlanSight is the only end-to-end -end RFP technology on the market today. Let's modernize your RFP process together. Check us out at plansite.com. Yeah, it's interesting because we do work with we do work with some of the largest fully insured carriers. We work with six of the ten largest stop loss carriers in the country. We work with captives. We work with MGUs. Again, we work with PEOs. I think we work with sixty something PEOs today. I think it's like eight of the ten largest PEOs in the country. We're helping them predict the risk. So, as I said before, when I started off at Gradient. Um, I think there was two or three clients. We now have, I think, 120 clients nice. in a matter of two years. So it's been just been rapid adoption. And I think that that really indicates how good the product is. So, but each one of those entities may have a little bit of a different business case that they're, mm -hmm. that they're trying to solve for. But again, the core is how do we more accurately predict risk? Mm -hmm. Even on, even for brokers, right? They're trying to articulate to their clients, should you move self? I mean, it, it's, it's easy to say, Hey, everybody should move to self-funding, mm -hmm. but that isn't the case. That's mm -hmm. not the reality. And anybody that's going out saying that is, is you know, is just is just trying it's to misleading. make a sale, yep, right? Yep. It's misleading. There are certain groups that need to stay in a true fully insured environment, but you may not know that. And so, what we do, we have several different products, but our core, our flagship product, is our as our um, is what we call sale. Um, S A I L. Um, it's real clever. It's got A I in the middle ah, there. Ah, that yeah. is very smart. Our marketing team is is was really on on fire that day. <laughs> um, but uh, but that is our what we call our census lookup tool. So when you okay. talk about some of the other competitors in the space, and I think there's a significant difference between us and them as far mm -hmm. as what we do, the data that we pull in, and the outputs that we're able to deliver. Um, and I think that's why the market is so rapidly sort of adopted. Um, gradient is sort of the gold standard in the predictive analytics space and, and the health insurance is is that we are simply taking a census 
So um, ideally a dependent level census, right? Mm -hmm. Because you mm -hmm. want to know what the risk is for every belly button that's coming onto the plan. But we are taking in first name, last name, gender, date of birth, um, those in zip code. Those five things is what are the items that we have to have on a census. Um, love to have coverage type, relationship type, but we have our standard census template. We are getting that data from um, you know, whoever our client is, whether any of those um, organizations that are entities that I mentioned before would be will be giving us that census. So whether they use our submission portal or whether we have a direct API feed into them or whether we're working with like a David Young, we have mm -hmm. a complete integration with them. Um, so or but the, the, the core, the core piece of data you need is a member level ideally census with i'm Correct. sure certain fields right certain things uh you know that are common for a census in order yep. to to capture so they give you that let's assume that in that situation you've got exactly what you need correct what's the next step what, what happens so the next then? step is that's really the only step for wow. them okay so okay. they they would um they being the entity our client right they 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 upload that to say they upload that census right as in, in our submission portal and um, then it goes to our data aggregator ecosystem, right? So, and this is sort of a little bit of the secret sauce behind our models and behind the way we do things is we've stitched together this data aggregator ecosystem, which consists of things like payers, um, providers, TPAs, PBMs. Um, there's all sorts of different, um, over 40 different points of signal that, that, that we're getting that, that when the census is coming in, it's pinging up against, uh, against that. And in a matter of two to three minutes, it's coming back with predi predictions on this group. And, and it's using, um, you know, medical data. So claim line medical mm -hmm. data we're getting, we're getting back. So procedure codes, diagnostic codes, revenue codes. So the ICD-10s, the HICS-PICS, it's getting back um, uh, RX data. So wow. retail and specialty, J codes, gene therapy, infusion, we're getting that information back. Okay. And ultimately, and maybe we'll talk about this down the road, we are also um, now rolling out lab data into our prediction. So that really makes us unique that we're, we're that we're using all three of those different areas to come back and make up, make our prediction of what we believe the risk will be for that particular entity going back seven years. Our models are only using, so we'll go back as far as 2015 to gather data, Okay. but our, but our models are trained to score off of the last four years of data. Right. And so there's an emphasis on, on more recent data mm -hmm. versus, you know, four years ago, um, as you might imagine. Can I ask a point yeah, of clarity of then? Um, does that census have names and or uh, social security numbers? It does on not it? have social okay. security. So you're not, but it could, it could in theory have names yes. and you have zip codes. So are you actually getting that profile of the actual individual and family Correct. using that aggregator? Okay. But all the data that comes back to us is totally de-identified. Okay. So, okay. Um, you know, that is something that we're, we're I was going to ask HIPAA, right? You yeah. know? Yeah. Okay. It's, it's, we're very vigilant about that on a, on okay, a day to day basis. Yeah. Uh, that's the biggest boogeyman, right? Is, is well, the is, census is always that thing. Like right. how much information is in it and what is the chain of custody and how it gets distributed and who can see it. And so I sh I'm sure there's all sorts of security protocols in place and to protect that. But the one thing I wanted to understand is like when that comes back, it doesn't say Sally has this Correct. condition. It does right? not. Okay. No. Okay, it's, it's a unique member ID. Um, or uh, it's, it goes through a tokenization process and it comes back with a, a unique member identifier. So, it you know, it says you know, member number 32, right? And if you ran that census again, that individual person would come back as member number 99 yep, or totally something like that. So there's no... But you're, I mean, it's really, truly painting a picture then. I mean, I, 
you said there could be 310 plus belly buttons or something. That million. You, million. Yeah, yeah, excuse me, million belly buttons. So effectively, anybody that shows up on a census, I mean, I'm sure there's reasons why a person wouldn't. Right. Um, but you're going to have, I mean, what is the percentage of successful pinging of yeah, finding that great person? Question. Yeah, question. Our average match rate, um, which mean, match rate yeah. to us means that we're getting either a medical an RX or a lab match on that particular individual in the census is around 92, 93%. That's, okay, that's, so that's it's, pretty crazy. It's, yeah. Again, it's an industry leading match rate. Um, and yeah, there are, there are reasons why, you know, specifically young dependents, right? Haven't, um, usually what we have seen is the people, tr historically the people that in, in our, in our um, analysis, the people that, um, that we don't find matches on are typically much more healthy than the people that we do find. Oh yeah. On. There's just no yeah. information in the last There's, four years of a doctor. Correct. Uh, I might have to, I might be one of those people. Yeah, unfortunately. yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, full exactly. disclosure here. Okay. So, so, so that census comes back, you get this profile, right? You yep. get, um, I'm sure indicators of thing, red flags or things to pay attention to. You've got this score with the lighting system that you use. Walk to me, walk me through what that scoring system means. Like, is it a, is it a, a continuum or is it a hard, this is a yellow, red or green. How does that scoring uh, so process Ultimately, what we the outputs that we deliver are we deliver a prediction of a risk, which is on a 1.0 scale based on a national national calibration on a federated national data set. So, um, you know, and it, it's pretty simple, right? 1.0 would be the the average, right? And anything above 1.0 is less preferred. Anything below 1.0 is more preferred. So we're provide we we provide a score back on on that what we call our sales score, which is a combination of of demo and of, of age, gender, right? And then the morbidity, the health of the group are okay. multiplied together to come up with what we call um, our sales score. And so some some entities, you you know, only use our morbidity score because they don't want to double count on the, because uh, they've got their own manual and they don't want to, yep. they don't want to double count on the demo score. And some people just use our sales score, but ultimately what we are also doing, so we provide that risk score. So that could be immediately for a group. And so we don't, we don't provide the consulting work for the, um, say, the stop-loss carrier. Yeah, you say, here's your score, but you don't say, hey, you should go after this group. Right. right? Now, we not... will definitely give our recommendations, uh -huh. right? Yeah. We will say, you know, potentially anything above 1.5, you know, may, might be less preferred risk. And, you you know, and, and, and every every carrier, right, has a different risk tolerance. Mm -hmm. And so, and then there's different conditions that mean different things to them. And there, there are there are um, conditions that pop up where they may have centers of excellence for, or they may have a drug that pops up where they've got a cost containment solution for that. So, um, you know, it, it, it really is down to that, that individual entity where, when they get the score, what they do with it. But ultimately we are also providing, so we're not just black box, right? We're not just providing just a risk score take that risk score, go forth and, and be merry. We're saying, okay, here's the risk score, but we are also going to tell you what the top conditions are, hmm. the top ICD-10s. Okay. Um, so in that group, we're going to, we're going to list those out. It's a curated list. It's chronic and um, chronic conditions and high cost conditions. So we're going to give, we're not, our model is scoring every condition, but we're only reporting back the top conditions, right? Okay. Otherwise, the you know the outputs would be you know too laborious to get through. But but so we will provide the top conditions and the top drugs within the group. So okay. you can say, hey, you've got 
five Humeras in here, you know, you've got, you know, you know, you name the drugs, right? Then, and, and we'll rank those from a from a a, a, a spend standpoint. So, a, a tier one is a drug that'll be, you know, we're going to be your J codes, right? They're mm-hmm. going to be drugs that are more than one hundred fifty thousand dollars in spend. Obviously, those pop off the screen immediately sure. to an yeah. underwriter when they see those. So, we're providing the risk score, the top conditions, the top drug spend. We're also providing. Um, uh, a cost. So we're providing what we believe the cost will be for this group over the next 12 months. So okay. we will say, and there's some caveats that go along with the cost. It's got to be adjusted for trend and and um, maybe for particular network and, and for particular plan design. But ultimately, we, from a directional standpoint, we will come back and say, hey, the, the spend for this 120 life group, we believe for the next 12 months will be $1.2 million. Okay. And so, um, and then we will provide a high cost claimant report too. So we will say, well, in that cost, we'll, sh- we will also provide um, specific thresholds. So we'll say, here's how many members are going to be above $10,000. I was literally just going to ask you that yeah. is like, if, does it, does it evaluate if the user, let's say I'm a stop loss MDU and I'm entering in the the requested spec levels. Yep. Does it account for at certain spec levels the you know a factor of hey at this spec level expect one point two claimants things like that? Does it take in that information into account? It didn't before. Okay. Breaking news. Oh, here you, on, you heard it here first on, on self under Spencer. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. Um, it does. That's a new model that we've rolled out specifically that. because of the demand from the stop loss space. Saying hey, can you do this for for us? Um, our you know, we've just got this incredibly brilliant team of, 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 of data scientists and data engineers and actuaries and our general manager, Brett Heineman, and this, 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 this great team have worked tirelessly to be able to roll out that, that product. And so that is available um, for our clients today. And so it's really exciting. Well, that, for us it reminds me, I, I was doing that type of work, and not in this sophisticated a manner, but we were looking that when I was on the uh, broker side as an analyst, looking at those spec levels and giving our own version of what we predicted yeah. with the likelihood of a spec and what is that as you increase the spec or lower the spec, what that variable would look like over time. Again, not really accurate, right? But just a prediction based on some of the loss history and our block of business and things like that. So you guys are obviously accelerating that with a lot more intelligence behind that decision, but it makes sense to look at it through that lens because you might find where that breaking point is a fixed cost and risk to, to get the appropriate spec level for, for a group. So thanks for breaking the news on the <laughs> podcast. I appreciate that. And um, so let's talk about, uh, there's some other things I want to talk to you offline because it's just about relationships and things like that. But um, let's talk about the use cases for those entities. You keep kind of, uh, you know, I don't want to say you're being vague about it, but there are specific entities we're talking about that would use your tool. Right. I envision obviously consultants. I asked if they use that. Obviously, stop loss MGUs, which you have cited uh, directly. I know some captives use it. What other entities or what are those core users of the platform that would benefit from a gradient? So ultimately, I believe it's anybody that is taking that is that is either taking risk themselves or um, their their clients are essentially taking risk. So we are working with you know, we are working with even the traditional carriers um, on their alternate funded products, right? The, mm. the, the fully insured, or I mean, the level funded equivalents yeah. that now all, uh, all of the carriers have out there, right? And they're, they're trying to, you know, they're outside of the modified community rating world. And, and so, um, you know, they can underwrite and they're trying to, 
um, assess are are these groups that we want to take on again not not to be redundant but it's it's they've got this limited um, bit of information that they have and and they want to you know they want to see if this is a piece of business that we yeah, can take off but totally. we, but what we've seen is is that you know there's been it it, it started off you know this, the 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 evolution is has been pretty crazy because it started off and we were kind of pigeonholed as you know a replacement for PHQs, right? Initially, mm-hmm. and then it was, and so we've 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 we we have had a lot of success of of having carriers use our predictions in lieu of PHQs. So brokers love that, right? And they don't have to go through that you know sort of tedious process of going out and getting PHQs. Mm-hmm. Those those days, those are que- in, but anybody yeah. that doesn't know questionnaires, right? Questionnaires, the medical right. questionnaires, IMQs, yeah, that's PHQs, okay. IMQs, yeah. yeah. So just manually filling out a piece of paper right. that says I have experienced these claims or I have these conditions. And yeah. when I grew up as a broker, that was, you know, that was, that was what we did, Normal. right? We yeah, went yeah. to the, we would sit there and, and help people, you know, you know, sit there and they'd fill out their forms and we'd send them in and, and it's, gosh, it was, it just seems crazy that that was the way that business uh-huh. used to be done pre-ACA, uh, pre-2012, I guess. And so, um, and even now, though today in these alternate funded mechanisms, there were there were IMQs being done. So we've really helped solve for that to get the the, the risk bearing entities comfortable enough that the predictions are accurate enough that you do not need um, the IMQs, the PHQs. So that awesome. was a, that was a start. Then it evolved into, you know. Um, larger groups where it's, it's again, fully insured takeover business, but then even on the self-funded to self-funded business there, there, the, the RFPs can, you know, from a broker can be incomplete. There can be a lack of data or there can be just too much data Yeah, and you can't, and, parse, it and, all. You know, yeah. you can't parse it all. And so if you've got too much data, you really have no data. And so, um, we see, you know, we see reinsurance carriers now, uh, and, and we see some of the, you know, we we just signed up a, lo- a stop loss carrier that really focuses on only a thousand plus business, mm. and and they're using us um, because number one, because the, the the data that they get is often incomplete, but also it's it's sort of, and this may be a little bit of bold um, statement, but this is exactly the words that they, they told us is is revolutionizing the way that they do underwriting in the sense of. In where things that took them might take an underwriter seven to ten hours, they're now getting in a matter of minutes. Well, I, I mean, I, you know, again, I don't want to get too pie in the sky about what you're doing, but the market's clearly dictating what you're doing is 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 important. Um, I could see this being the just common standard practice, at least of that triaging of underwriting on every single group, right? Because every single group's going to have a census. Not every single group's going to have data. So at worst case, you run it through the model to get a little bit clearer picture that supplements the rest of your underwriting. So I could very quickly see this being literally the standard for the way that we start the underwriting process. The way that you've described it, the success rate on the match rate, the fact that you've accessed a 300 plus uh, million belly buttons in, in that database. It's almost like, wh- tell me where the downside is, right? Tell me tell me where I would not want to use this. Yeah. It's probably the more limited answer than why would you use it? I think... You know, great question, and and I and, and I, I couldn't agree. You're a salesman, with, so you're in agree. Yeah. But I mean, clearly, like I'm also the guy that gets to hear the story, but doesn't actually have to use it, right? And so I'm always very cautious to say, if I'm a consultant, you know, I'm listening to this podcast. I don't have the responsibility of deploying this out in the marketplace and having the real world impact of that. So take everything I per se as my perspective with a grain of salt, but I've been in this industry long enough, seen it from every different vantage point, from the broker side to the wholesale side to the carrier side to the tech yeah. side. I don't see 
a downside unless it's cost, right? Unless it's cost prohibitive. Well, certainly, um, you know, certainly there is a cost to it. We do not believe it's cost prohibitive. I think we've we've there were um, others in this space that that I think the, their pricing um, model was prohibitive, right? And it was disincentivizing people from actually using the model. I think we flipped that okay. um, that whole pricing model on its head by by the way that we that we price. Um, I do think from from the standpoint of um, you know, it was interesting. We did a webinar um, a couple weeks back th through SIA, and um, you know, we were fortunate enough to get I think it was over 700 people uh, to attend to, to register for it. I think there was like 500 and something people attended, but it was it was it shattered the the records for SIA I, I don't of, doubt of, it. of attendees. I hope and, you shattered the records for my podcast <laughs> and listeners. Yeah, as I well. hope so yeah, too. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Um, but I but I think it, it's it's not that's not a um, you know I don't say that as a commercial for Gradient AI. I say it is is the, the artificial intelligence topic yeah. is so hot right oh, now. And it's so, you know, everybody with, with chat GPT and all these different things mm -hmm. out there, people, they know, right, that, that artificial intelligence and people are terrified. Does that mean robots are, you know, taking over everything, you know, and there's not going to be, you know, jobs for humans. And that's absolutely not the case. It's just more efficiently um, and automating and, and doing things. And so I think the down, you know, the only downside um, would be, and I don't even think it's a downside. It's just we need to constantly educate our clients of uh, that this model isn't perfect. It does have. Well, I can misses. see we're overconfidence, right? right? Like, oh, this is a, a foolproof method, and now I can pre-screen every single opportunity, and I'll get it with 100% accuracy, and I'll, I'll win. Like, obviously, that's going over your skis a little right. bit. Right. So that's exactly right. I can right. see where you go. Well, I'm going to do this instead of my basic tenets of underwriting that are tried and true over decades and decades, and you'd have some misses because of that. So, do you view it? And this is my vantage point. But do you view it as always, not always, but right now as a supplement. It is not a replacement for underwriting. Yeah. We're on a mission to partner with the most innovative companies in America to fix health benefits one plan at a time. NavMD has created a blueprint that delivers world-class benefits to 155 million Americans. Better benefits starts with data intelligence. Our platform is empowering the next generation of advisors to zero in on opportunities to optimize the plan, build the right team, implement proven strategies and solutions. Join us on our journey to revolutionize health benefits. Let NavMD put you a step ahead. Yes, I okay, absolutely. Okay. I mean, we think we... We definitely think it's a it's a it's a great supplement, but it but you know in a vacuum or, or as as it, it needs to be used with with care in the hands of of you know somebody that 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 under because there's so you know a seasoned underwriter gets this information and there's so much that they can do with it right mm -hmm. and and they and and ultimately you know at first the fear is oh this is this uh technology is meant to be a replacement for us once we get over that hurdle when we're talking to the chief underwriting officer or the chief actuary mm -hmm. um you know that is a burden of of you know from a sales st standpoint initially was you know hey we're not trying to replace you know we're yeah. not trying to replace Believe me, you. i have conversations like that all the time yeah. with what we do as well i get, I get right. the, the fear uh component of that so once once we've gotten kind of gotten over that fear and then they realize hey the knowledge is power right we're getting this information and ideally it's not you know um just paralysis by analysis because you got so much information at your fingertips and sometimes it takes a little while right because they're saying Typically, we would think this way, but now we've got this data at, at our fingertips and it's it's saying this. So, um, you know, there's a lot of conversations back and forth between our team and, and our clients to, to sort of come up with 
how do they, what's the business case that they're trying to solve for? What's mm -hmm. the business that they're going after? Um, and how do we technically make sure that the, that we have, that we are properly solving for what they're trying to okay. do. Right. And, and, and go ahead. I'm no, sorry. no, no. I was going to say, I, I really would like to hone in on, if you don't mind, Matt, um, knowing my audience, a lot of the audience that listens to this is consultants because right. like the, one of the things that I like to do is present these new things, these new ideas, these new concepts out there and let somebody listen in and sort of long form understand it a little bit better to make sense. Does it look, does it make sense for me to reach out to Matt now and talk about gradient? So if we look at it, the lens of a consultant, which I, I know you said is kind of the newer uh, bastion, if you will, of, of uh, business for you guys, because that wasn't really where you started. If I am a consultant, what is the use case for me? How would I interface with the system? How would I deploy that on behalf of, a, of an employer? Why would I want to use this? Like, kind of talk to me from that particular lens, if you don't mind. Sure. So I, I think there are several different, you know, use cases. Um, specifically, if you are working, you know, it, I, I would recommend certainly talking to your MGU partners if they're still requiring um, you know, PHQs, mm -hmm. then find an MGU that is using a, a software like Gradient AI and 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 get over that hurdle first, right? Sure. So that you don't have to live, I don't want to call it the stone ages, but that but you know, you don't have to deal with that that problem anymore. And then initially, like as you said, we we haven't really created a as of yet, we will, but um, a broker specific model, but we do have a few um you know, sort of um, early adopters that have that have um, that are using um, gradient AI, and and what they're using the information for is a couple things, and 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 most specifically, it is in that is is our client should our client be moved to an alternate yeah. funded mechanism? Yeah. They're hearing constantly about captives. They're hearing constantly about RBP. They're hearing about um, you know that as we talked about earlier, this whole movement of um, you know. You should be you should be taking your client away away from you know a traditional carrier and into this this self funded world and as we said that's not always the case mm -hmm. but but they don't have the data at their fingertips right. to say is should we really be doing this so literally they get the census in a matter of minutes they now have this information at their fingertips okay. so they can go out I, I personally think from my days as a consultant anytime I could have more information to share with my clients about what's going on. Like, why did I get a 16% increase? Well, you just did. You had a you had a bad year. Mm -hmm. You know, well, what does that mean I had a bad year? You know, and it's very difficult to articulate that when you don't have any claims data to share with them and you're just you're just telling them, you know, well, I, I we've we've been given a little bit of info, but basically you're getting a 16% and I think I can negotiate this down to a 12%, maybe 11% mm -hmm. and you're good. Let's move on down the road and the and the you know the 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 end employers just left shaking their head, right? Their CFOs like this we don't do this in any other nature of our business. Yeah. We just told that we're getting a 12% increase and we're not getting any data. This allows you to have that data. So you know, you get the report back and you see, okay, the projections of claim for you over the next 12 months is actually higher than what your premium would be at, at yeah. renewal. Yeah. Um, you've got these conditions going, again, de-identify, but you've got these conditions going on within your, uh, within your group. You've got, you know, this, you've got X amount of conditions that would fall above um, this spec level. So, you know, if you do go self-funded, let's think about what spec level you're going to, you, you mm -hmm. know, what you're going to set that at. And obviously a consultant that knows what they're doing, 
that information is incredibly powerful for them to have at their fingertips, to be able to tell the story, to be able to tell the story, not only to the client about where they should go and what funding mechanism is appropriate for them, but also beat the drum for them to the stop loss world, to the yeah. carrier world about this is what's going on within in, in this group. And, and again, you're telling the story to the market for your client to help get them the best. Well, I can see as a consultant, I can see two applications that make a lot of sense on the micro level. Let's say I'm prospecting for a new piece of business and I want to present the notion of self-funding to an employer that hasn't gone down that path before. If I can get the census, which I presume they, even if I'm not the BOR, I could get the census and therefore I could go say, Hey, let me run it through our backroom underwriting tool that we pay for to give you a sense of whether or not it even makes sense on the surface for you to go self-funding. So I could come back and present the findings and say, hey, based on this profile that we've created for you, it actually looks like this is a, is a good, here's like objective data that says it's a good opportunity per, to potentially pursue. Rather than saying, like you said earlier, I'm a consultant that just says, hey, everybody should be self-funded and here's why and this is what you should do yep. and you should do it too. And right. you know that, that really doesn't have any uh, substance behind the reasoning. Correct. So that's the micro level. The macro level is at the, these panels or center of excellence level, yeah. these internal GAs at the alphabet shops, where they're running a billion dollars of stop loss a year out to market and getting that back. If I tell my clients, hey, I'm screening all of these opportunities before I even send it to the carriers, I know, roughly speaking, like what we would expect for your renewal or what these bids should probably look like. Now I have leverage to go negotiate with those carriers because I have personally paid for it and run it myself. I could see both of those applications making sense. Yeah. Consultants. No, that's those. That's very well said, and I I couldn't agree with you more. I'll package that up as a commercial. Yeah, I appreciate you. Yeah, There's yeah. a sales job for yeah. you if you need yeah. one. Yeah, um, <laughs> Gradient AI. Um, the uh, a couple other things. Like I really like the the advanced features that we provide. Right, the yeah. drugs and the conditions. Um, you know, a, a, a consultant that really knows what they're doing, if they've got that list, right, of top drugs within a particular group, um, there's lots of things that they can do with that, not only from, a, you know, a cost containment standpoint of, <coughs> of looking at, you know, various, um, you know, RX containment vendors out there, but even um, getting with their with their TPA and their PBM mm -hmm. and crafting the the proper formulary for for that group, right? And so there, there's there's a tremendous amount of power in that. And what what we also see is um, you know this is, is not as big of a use case, but we do see a ton of mergers and acquisitions activity with 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 groups, right? This is a it's a hundred life group and they're going to acquire a thirty life group, and ah, yeah. um, you know they they have no idea. You know, uh, this 30 life group, this is what the rates are. They got a 15% increase next year. Pull them onto your plan. Um, well, do we want to pull them onto our plan? Does a carrier want us to pull us on our plan? It's a greater than 10% um, change yep. so that we're subject to, um, you know, potential yeah, re-underwriting. Yeah. And, and instead, you, you run it through um, our sale model and, you know, you find out there's a hemophiliac in this group or, mm -hmm. um, you know, whatever. There's a, there's a pancreatic cancer that's just been diagnosed. And... And um, obviously, we're not saying you know you don't want to insure those people. You just it it, it the, just again knowledge is power. What yeah. what do you you know what do you do if you're thinking about moving to uh, self funded this year with this new acquisition? Probably not the best time. Let's let's keep this you know in 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 a, a fully insured environment, and we'll take a look at it 12 months from now. Well, that it is also the I mean that's that's a really good thing to stress is that you might come up with a result that says this group should not be self-funded and they should stay where they are and they're probably underpriced based on their risk profile because they're pooled 
stick to fully insured for now, right? And we'll look at it every year until maybe it does make sense. But that is always an appropriate outcome for that particular group if that is the case, right? And we get caught up sometimes in this industry where everybody wants to self-fund every yep. group and do RBP and direct contracting and make this just very complicated, but probably a high probability of a good outcome right. plan design. That is not for everyone. And sometimes it is appropriate. And if even I'm in the next couple of weeks, I'm highlighting take command and ICRAs on, yeah. on the podcast, right? There is an argument sometimes for just being out of the risk business altogether yeah. as an employer. And that might also be okay if that's the decision you make, but it's being armed with good data and good information to make the most educated decision rather than force somebody into a bucket that is inappropriate. Well said. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. It's, 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 it's not a, it, as everything, it's not a, it's not a one size fits all. And there is that rhetoric out there that, you know, everybody should, um, move to self-funded and, Hey, we want everybody to try, but uh, I mean, yeah, I used to want that too, but, but and, you yeah. know, and ultimately, you know, it's, it's, it's a concept sale in and of itself, you know, of the, um, you know, talking to the employer and you, you are going to ride a little bit of a roller coaster ride. And what we're able to do as well is, you know, because of the way our pricing model is set up as a particular broker might be able to run a group through three, four times through our model in a given year to see, you know, what's developed, anything had changed. So, I um, mean, you know, I, well, that'd be pretty interesting to see where it's running in conjunction with the act. Let's say it's already self-funded. How's it running versus what is the, the model tell us it should be yeah. running at throughout the year as things evolve. That'd be pretty interesting. Yeah. To and do. we, we have, you know, we do have clients that do that for, uh, as you might imagine, they're holding our feet to the fire oh, on, yeah. our, on our predictions. Right. And so again, as I said, yeah. we don't, not all of our, you know, we, we are really, really good on the tails you know, on the, on the groups that you want to, the, the, the groups that you want to run away from and, and the ones that you want to, um, that you want to go after, um, you know, the messy middle as, yeah, you know, as we yeah. call it is, is a little more, well, messy. And, and so, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's difficult in those predictions, but we're seeing a tremendous amount of accuracy as we continue to retrain our models. We continue to update them. We move to different versions of our model, um, you know, and um, keep adding different, you know, mm -hmm. data sources um, that we're using to, to, to give us predictive lift. Well, before, before we zoom out and sort of close, you know, close out the podcast and talk big picture, is there any regulatory concerns, right? Because like some of what you described, I can see where some people might be concerned about the, um, access to data, right, that you guys have. Because, I mean, this whatever this aggregator model, and you don't have to say what it is behind the scenes, I mean, they yeah. have some very sensitive information in that database. So do you ever hear people decrying the notion of Big Brother or, or anything like that? I mean, e even if you do, like, can we dispel that or talk about when you do, do hear those objections, what is kind of the response to, to something of that nature? We, I do hear that. Not, not as much as I did two years ago, okay. right? You got to understand two years ago, we were, my initial phone calls, you know, as a sales, um, you know, as a salesperson was, what is gradient AI? How does this work? And now that we're more established in the industry, I, I'm not having those questions, yeah. but it was when we talked about what we did, it was like, oh, that's big brother. That's got, you know, you, you can't be doing that. And, and um, so is there so we have a team that's that that mm -hmm. um that's led led by um you know somebody a, a gentleman in our office um that 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 is constantly um making sure that we are in, oh in, yeah in, i know no doubt about in that compliance yeah. and yeah. so we go through these very um robust procurement processes when processes when we're when we're writing one of these large you know when you're writing this huge 
um, like a Liberty Mutual of the, of the yeah. world or something like that, or a Sun Life. Not that those are existing clients, just something that you yeah. referenced before. As you know, working for those organizations, there there is there's huge procurement process in there. So their legal teams are vetting us, um, you know, to the nth degree, right? And mm -hmm. so um, we have we have been able to stand the stand up to that um, rigorous scrutiny as far as yeah. are we in compliance? Now there are there is legislation um, in. Uh, certain states now, um, Colorado being one, I think Utah is another. Um, I'm forgetting what the blank, blanking on what the other state is, but um, Colorado is one that I know specifically. It's it's more, it's not necessarily because we are using, we are not using social determinant data, right? Okay. We are using medical and RX data, which is being used to underwrite, you know, in and just about every underwriting shop in the country, mm -hmm. right? Okay. So, um, well, I'm glad you drew that distinction because that was actually a misconception uh, I had about. So, I hear that social determinants of health term, and I presumed that was the case for you. So, can you kind of delineate those two things for me, real quick, so I know the difference in what you do versus that model? Yeah, sure. So, social determinant data, uh, you know, as 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 you know, I mean, there's there there are there are uh, our competitors out there in that space that that do use the, the social determined data. So, you know, credit history mm -hmm. and social media posts and, and um, things along those lines to predict what risk is. Um, there is legislation out there that says that that could inherently be biased um, or discriminatory in nature, uh -huh. right? And so um, we have we have stayed away from that for two reasons. One, we just, quite frankly, we see more predictive accuracy and lift in actual medical data. Okay. I mean, it, 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 for me, it stands to reason that you would much rather know what, what is somebody's, you know, medical history and RX mm -hmm. history than you want to know about what their credit history and social media posts are, yeah. right? And <laughs> yeah. so, Fair and enough. I know there's yeah. more to what, what um, the social determinant data is. And, and I'm not saying there's not a place for that. I'm just saying we have, we have access to that. We just haven't done it because one, we don't see the predictive lift in some of the um, initial work we've done on it. And number two, we want to stay out of. Well, any, that's fair. Any, well, I appreciate you drawing that distinction, right? And we're not necessarily, I don't make judgments on this podcast of which one is better or more appropriate, yeah, but it's yeah. always good to understand when it's a, when you would want to go down this path, what are some of the cons of doing so and the inverse of that? And is there ever, is there ever a use for both? simultaneously yeah. okay because someone one could augment the other and if you're not really inherently worried about the potential legislation or the bias or discrimination you whether or not it's actually true right will right. be determined um you could stack those two things theoretically on top of each other too yeah right? that's exactly right and we do have clients that do that today right okay. we have clients that use you know that you might that you know, that use multiple predictive analytics tools and they've created their own secret sauce how how they weigh each tool to to come up with their um, you know, what they're going to use for a prediction of risk. So, um, yeah, I don't want to, uh, I know. Yeah. And yeah. I think anytime there's innovation, right. Right. Uh, you know, you get, you think of when you went from, uh, radio only in this country to black and white TV, and then all the noise about how it's going to ruin everything. And then right. you get black and white to color TV, right. And like all these changes, then we get the internet, which you and I experienced in our lifetime. Now we're going through the web, you know, 3.0 or whatever it is. Yep. And then we've got obviously artificial intelligence proliferating as well. Every time there's some new technology, there's always like these detractors. There's always the fear around it. And then the reality ends up somewhere in that messy middle that you described earlier. Yeah. It really depends on 
whose hands it is it in and what are you actually using the tool for rather than is it necessarily good or is it necessarily bad and bad and aggregate for society i think this on the surface is inherently good because it clearly um, creates a profile in the absence of data that you could not get otherwise. And then it lets you make a more informed decision on the other side of that. Yeah. You know, again, well, I don't want to get into the doomsday world of artificial intelligence or anything like that. No, Cause but I don't I subscribe do, to it fully. I, I do, you know, in, in, in the webinar that I was talking about earlier, I, and I, I've heard this from several prominent stop loss, um, you know, companies is that, you know, within the next 12 to 24 months, if you're not using some form of artificial mm -hmm. intelligence in your underwriting process, you will be selected against as a carrier. I believe it. And, and so um, I, I firmly believe, obviously I wouldn't be sitting here, I wouldn't be in the position that I'm in if I didn't believe that, um, you know, that artificial intelligence will be a part of um, the underwriting for, you know, for, for anybody that's in the, in the risk business. They Absolutely. will have some, tool, hopefully it's great in AI, but yeah. they will have some tool that they're using um, from an artificial intelligence standpoint to help better predict the risk. Well, so before uh, last step, before we get to big picture and future of this, is there, you mentioned you gradient started as PNC, then moved in the accident and health space space. Is there application for this in life and disability and, you know, like other, other forms of insurance that are less uh, frequent in terms of their claims, but obviously have higher severity and in instances of payouts, like a life insurance claim. Like, is this being used for that potentially as well? It, it is. And, um, and there absolutely is. Uh, there, I mean, there has there, to be, right? right. I, I kind of knew yeah. the answer beforehand, yeah. but I wasn't sure if we were there yet. So let's let's talk future, right? Like to future state of what you can and are able to share. What do you think the bigger picture of this in the next few years is for the utility of it? Yeah, obviously, the the prevalence of it we think is going to be massive. But walk me through kind of what you might think the impact is to the healthcare industry with a tool like this. Yeah, I think you know it. It's that's a great question and and something we. You know, we, I had a call yesterday or the day before. Um, you know, in this post-COVID world, Zoom world, we all all the uh -huh. days all yeah, the I days know. run together, right? I know, but, believe me. Um, you know, we were sitting down, going over our roadmap of products, and it's 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 pretty incredible the things that we have on the horizon. Obviously, some of which I, which I, I I can't get into, but of course, um, it is like we have just scratched the surface of, of what we are about to do and what we are capable of doing. And I mean, I, I really, I think about it and I think of the success um, that we've had and others in the space have had um, because, you know, it's the way it, it, it's that mindset of like, I mean, this is, this is such a, I mean, insurance is, you know, it's been around for, for forever in this country. Right. And it's, 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 it's still in some ways, being done the same way that it was done hundreds of years ago with with a you know a, a, a debit and credit system and 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 you know that's the way that underwriting is handled and it's always been done this way and this is the way that we're going to continue to do it and this type of technology is 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 disrupting you know it's just, it's just a it's a complete market disruptor and I just think it's only going to increase and and the things that we're able to do um, you know from you know, from a disease state standpoint, right? Is this, is this, you know, what, this person has these conditions. Do you think they'll take this, this drug in the future? Yeah. Or um, is this person a candidate for, 
um, gene therapy, you know, that's a huge topic in, in stop loss, right? Because of the, the cost of, of some of those, those drugs out there that can oh be, you God. know, million dollar drugs and things along those lines. So it's, you know, it's, it's not only predicting, um, you know, what we see based upon the comorbidities and the usage today, but what is, you know, what could they be doing well that? on the in the future predictive like what about price transparency as well yeah. right like i mean could this potentially be used to determine whether or not the appropriateness of cost for that care that was delivered based on that geographic region or the network yeah. you know like i could see you really being able to unpack and maybe more accurately price what something should be based on all these data points that already exist in, in your database. I mean, there's kind of seems like the sky's the limit, right, uh, on yeah. an application for this. That's well said. And those are things that we're, we're thinking about all the time. It, it's, it, it really honestly is a credit to our, our clients that we are um, like it, our clients push us every day, right? Like, have you thought about this? Could you do, you know, can you mm -hmm. do this? Um, you know, one of the things that we, um, you know, lab data, for example, starting to use lab data, there's an incredible amount of predictive lift, um, as you might imagine in, in, in lab data, um, what we're able to do with that. There's not as much of a match rate because there aren't as many people drawing labs as there are getting medical treatment or getting, getting um, prescriptions, but um, just an incredible amount of predictive accuracy in there. We talked about the stop loss model. We do these we Can you do. tap into my Apple Watch data and see what my average heart rate is over over the course of uh, time? Is that is that possible? <laughs> I mean, are we there yet? With we the are. We are not there yet. I'm sure somebody somebody's got to be somebody's there. Somebody's thought about it. But yeah, one of the areas that we're looking to get into right is is everything that we've done thus far is 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 about um, you know risk exposure, right? It's it's um, identifying, um, predicting, quantifying. Um, risk exposure on the front end, um, where where we want to launch into and move into is performance analytics or claims analytics, okay. right? It's doing, it's training, it's launching our models that have been trained on um, all of this 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 you know millions and millions of lives is to is to get with you know claims managers, care management teams, and um, talk to them about how with with this advanced you know, decision support, this advanced data analytics to um, more quickly, more efficiently um, look at their existing blocks of business okay. and how those are running and how can we use our artificial intelligence to derive or to drive um, better outcomes there. So that's, that's an area that we're very interested in. Um, there are a lot of players in that space. Um, we think if, if our past is any indication of, of, of future, we think we'll be a formidable player in that space um, as well. But there are, um, you know, things like things like morbidity risk halos, um, just being able to say with a predictive degree of certainty how accurate our, our prediction is, right? We believe this prediction is 75% accurate. If you, went, if you went up to this risk score, it would be 85% accurate. If you, went, if you needed to price this at this point to win the business, it's 45, you know, there's a 45% accuracy um, that it's gonna fall into it. Are you, you know, do you have that risk tolerance? Yeah. So. Well, man, it's, it's, I suspect, Nathan, this is probably one of our longest podcasts, right? Yeah, for sure. Like, it is, I, for good reason, because this is something I really wanted to dig into deeply and I personally find the subject fascinating. So I appreciate you going to the depth with me, Matt. But Absolutely. Let's, let's go into the interest for everybody. And I'm sure we want to leave people leave, wanting more, right? So they'll reach out to you hopefully for some new opportunities. But closing thoughts as we wrap up the podcast itself. Floor is yours. 
Um, yeah, no, I mean, first and foremost, I appreciate the opportunity. My, my pleasure. Always man. great to, to get, to get to Dallas. Um, I, I would just say, you know, um, you know, again, I, I, you know, take it for what it's worth. Cause I'm a salesperson, but, um, or a sales guy, but, um, I think it, it's clear, um, the market is, is, has spoken. There is, there is a strong, um, you know, there is, there's a strong, not only desire, but need, um, for this. And if you're in this, if you're in this space, if you're in the, you know, the employee benefits, the A&H space, um, you know, this is something that you should be, um, if, if not, even if you're not using it, you should be informed uh, about how it's working and how it could help you, especially for brokers, how, how it could help you, um, better serve your clients and, generate more leads, more revenue for yourself, you know, and we're, we're always open for the, for the conversation and, and reach out and, and we can give a demo of our capabilities and talk about, um, you know, we're not a fit for everybody and we, we won't, we won't, we won't push you too hard if, if we're not a mm-hmm. fit, but ultimately show you what we're doing, what our future state looks like and, and, um, uh, you know, ultimately find a business. Fit. Well, and not to suggest that you guys need it, but I suspect you'll get some interest after this because I, like I was telling you off camera, I found that the episodes where we get pretty technical in nature tend to do better because like, that's what my audience ultimately often is looking for is like, give me something new and give me something with some meat on the bone so that I can figure out whether or not it applies to, to my business. And so I hope obviously that you'll get some inbound traffic afterwards, but either way, really appreciate this, man. You opened my eyes to you know, something that I knew was out there, but didn't know enough about to be dangerous. Um, so thanks for sharing, Matt. Thanks for traveling, man. And hopefully we'll do a round two yeah. uh, future state uh, sometime down it. the road. True Captive believes in healthcare that is personal, an in insurance that isn't complicated. Check them out at truecaptive.com.